You're listening to the voices behind Women's Cricket Chat. That's Hannah, Georgie, Cassie, Mahika and Alex. Coming up on today's podcast, we've got former England spinner and double World Cup winner Holly Colvin. And we talked to Holly about all things cricket, in particular being the youngest cricketer, male or female, to make their debut for England, as well as taking a step back from playing cricket and going into a more administerial role and talking all things Commonwealth Games. Yeah, so Holly, obviously we got in touch with you because we are at Women's Cricket Chat and we're all about the women's game, celebrating the superstars behind it, in front of it, involved in it in every kind of way. And you seem to have your fingers in many pies around the women's cricket game. Not saying that you bowl pies because we're not having any of that, but you've been there, you've done that, you've got the T-shirt, the headset, the microphone and everything to go with it. (laughs) Obviously we were like, we've got to talk to this girl. So, yeah, to start us off, we can talk about like how your cricket journey started. Like your internationals, you, you know, you made your debut just casually the youngest English player ever, men's or women's. Um, what was it like when you were first drafted in for that debut game? Yeah, quite surreal is probably the first the first point. I think it was obviously a very different era of women's cricket back then. I mean, I uh, my home ground and home county is Sussex um, and the 2005 Ashes Test match was being played at Hove. Um, I was drafted in to basically netball um, at the team the few days before and the training leading up to the test match itself. And they have had legendary, you know, Shelley Nitschke in their team. So they wanted a left arm spinner. So off I popped. And I just remember getting home one evening and um, or being home and my mum pa- passing me the phone with a very confused look on her face and said, oh, Richard Bates wants to speak to you, who was the head coach at the time. And I was like, oh, okay, nice. And he was like, oh, are you free for the next four days? And I was like, yep, it's school holidays, not really doing anything. Um, Sure, I'm available. Um, Like, oh, we'd like you to play. And I was like, sorry, like thinking, you know, run the drinks, be, you know, be helpful in the background. They're like, no, we want you to play in the test match. And I was like, Right. Um, sure. No, no problem. And obviously I had to get all my parents permission, had to get over there and everything else. And then, yeah, got drafted into this test match for four days. Um, sort of met. I knew a couple of the girls in the team vaguely because um, I'd only made, I think, my county debut for the senior team the year before when I was 14. And yeah, I was bowling. What was more funny, I think, was I was bowling to the likes of like Belinda Clark, Lisa Kitely, Catherine Fitzpatrick, Julia Price, who I know quite well now. And I genuinely had no idea who they were. Like, and I think that's quite a testament of how times have changed, where I was bowling to arguably some of the greatest players the women's game's ever seen. And I didn't even really know who they were, which actually worked to my advantage because I was just kind of bowling and I didn't really realize who it was and, you know, and kind of the occasion of it all. So, yeah, the actual test match is a bit of a blur, but I still... Yeah, claim that I got Julia Price out um, first ball, which is um, she still holds against me now. So which is great. Um, but it was it was good fun and a bit of a whirlwind and a bit of a surprise, pleasant surprise. And obviously you made your debut in that 2005 Ashes test and you almost took a hat trick. You got the likes of Kate Blackwell and Julia Price out and then you almost got Julie Hayes out. What was it like? being so young, making your debut for England in any format, and then to potentially take a hat-trick as well on debut? 
I think the first time I kind of realized it was a big occasion was like on day two when I think it made national newspapers and I, there were a few people a few press like about and I was like I'd never really received that sort of attention before and again it was kind of like I was almost the best version of myself because I had no fear at that age I had really nothing to lose I had everyone else had less you know more to more to lose I guess for getting out to a schoolgirl. and yeah there was just I just remember uh Catherine Fitzpatrick Fitzy being quite terrifying at the top of her mark because she would bound in off a very long run and bowl the ball pretty fast so but I was used to playing a lot of boys cricket as well back then I was playing for my school boys team and I think yeah it's it was a great occasion um but yeah it's good and obviously at the time you know it was your school holidays most people are getting up to God only knows what in their school holidays you're obviously looking ahead to your GCSEs which which went quite well just casually with a just a couple of A stars in there, a couple more A stars, just a few. What was it like trying to balance international Ashes cricket with school, with social life, with looking to the future, planning for you know A levels, AS levels, and university and beyond? I think, well, firstly, I was a geek at school, and it was a good job that I played a lot of sport because, yeah, I was, I guess, more knew a lot more people on in different friendship groups playing playing a lot of sport I was I'm actually probably more disorganized now than I I was very regimentally organized when I was a kid and I would always make sure that I kind of scheduled time for anything as much as I could and I read and my for me I kind of got this not satisfaction is the wrong word but I knew if I scheduled time for everything I could only do as much as I could in the time that I had and I couldn't do any better and so I would make sure there was time for revision time for training all the rest of it and I think I kind of managed my time that way but for me cricket kind of came about by accident I'd never planned to be an international cricketer I'd never even dreamed of being a professional cricketer that's another conversation and so schoolwork always came first really so for example when I did my A-levels I actually, when it was the January modules in, I think it was 2008, I flew out late to Australia because I was doing my January exams. And then I missed the tour of New Zealand to go back to school. And the same with my final year at university, I missed a tour to complete my finals. So there were a lot of girls in the team that deferred or did their uni degree over five years and kind of did it more part-time. Whereas for me, I was like, no, I'm getting get my uni degree do it in three years and then cricket will continue after that because for me kind of your education at the time was for my career whereas cricket was just something I happened to be good at. And you mentioned there that cricket perhaps wasn't the ideal route for you to go down so what were you hoping would be your career choice instead because after all you did study at Durham you did do natural sciences so what was sort of the thinking behind that? Well growing up I did watch a lot of crime dramas and thought that my calling was to be a forensic scientist and catch bad people. Then I, as more as my science education at school and degree level, I realized how much I hated labs. And I was like, no, that's not for me. At one point, I wanted to be a medic um, and help people. I'm fascinated about the human body, how that all works, but realized that again, was pretty time consuming and a very long education and probably wasn't compatible. So... I kind of just did something education-wise that I enjoyed and was interested in and 
thought I'll figure the rest out from there and didn't really have a plan. The one thing I would say, and actually it's quite a nice story, I reached out to her not so long ago, but the Professional Cricket Association back then, they had they still do now have personal development managers. And we had Kate Green at, at Sussex when I was in the academy there and we ran a community project and she just took it to the group. There was me and Sarah Taylor and the rest of them lads and said, right, you've got the opportunity to do whatever you want to, to reach out to the community. And we decided to, to run a fundraising cricket match to raise money for charity and also engage in the club. And kind of that got me into wanting to be in events, which sounds ridiculous now. But yeah, that was kind of me at 16, 17. And I genuinely messaged her when I got the job with the Commonwealth Games and said, it seems like a long way, long time ago that when I was 17, I wanted to do something in cricket events. And now I am running the first ever women's cricket competition in the Birmingham 22 Commonwealth Games is quite cool so yeah I guess events and cricket eventually came to fruition and it sort of seems like everything sort of all went in a big mixing pot at the beginning and it's really come out in the right direction for you we'll come back to the Commonwealth Games in a bit because that is obviously absolutely massive but you say at the time you know you were doing stuff looking at the PCA and things like that and they obviously help support cricketers you know with their development with their balancing of their time and things like that do you think that's changed for women in the game since you started out yeah I think the landscape and the professionalism of women's cricket has changed tremendously which means kind of the level of servicing and support required by the PCA has also changed and adapted accordingly I think back in my day which is always something that people say isn't it we weren't I literally six months before the first ever professional contracts came about um, I decided to take time out and so the era I was playing in it was pretty much fully amateur you got yes you got some expenses and some some funding support but it wasn't enough to sustain you you needed something else you needed a part-time full-time whatever job it was and so when you transitioned out of cricket most women that were playing at the time would transition back into the job they were already doing part-time but turning it into a full-time job or kind of molding themselves into into an actual career um, that they've got kind of part-time experience in whereas now it's because it's full-time professional at the international level and now filtering down into domestic cricket it's a very different transition for people who have just really focused on their cricket careers and may not necessarily have as much experience in other areas of sport, of business, of um, kind of working life. And you mentioned that you took some time out. So it was back in, was it 2014, you took a sabbatical and you went over to Africa to help out with AIDS awareness. How did you use cricket over there to try and boost that? And was that something that sort of really stuck in your mind and now has led to all your work with Cricket Without Boundaries these days? Yeah, so... I first got involved in the charity Cricket Without Boundaries in 2012. So just when I graduated from university and at that stage, I was struggling a little bit with cricket in general, just in terms of the enjoyment factor, everything else, a lot of other things and kind of decided I needed a bit of perspective and actually to give back to a sport that had given me so much um you know the opportunity to travel the world at a young age to be to do all these amazing things and actually just needed to be get grounded so 
Yeah, from 2012 to 2014. So I went on three different trips to Kenya, uh, Uganda and Rwanda with Cricket Without Boundaries. And their mission really is to use cricket as a vehicle to spread positive messages and education in health and social issues. The majority of the work has been in Africa, um, which is where I went to, but they are also expanding into the likes of, of Jordan as well, into sort of Middle Eastern um, areas. So they're doing brilliant work. And when I moved out to Dubai, I became less involved in the charity. But since I've come back, I've now become a trustee of the charity um, and they do some amazing work, and particularly with some of the ambassadors that I've met that are permanently funded by the charity in country and who lead the projects that go out there. So, and they're con- constantly working on the ground. So it was a, a real eye-opening, amazing, incredible experience um, and something that really added value to kind of my cricket at the time. And what are some of the differences when you go on trips like these between being a player and then going for charity work? I think the biggest thing is that you just let loose is the wrong term, but like you just you're there for pure enjoyment and you can see it on the the kids, the coaches faces if you you literally bring out the most simple thing as a tennis ball and it will brighten a kid's day and you coach and you entertain and you you just have pure enjoyment like you're a big kid yourself and coming from an elite professional environment where you're constantly your performance is being analyzed you're constantly trying to improve it you're constantly trying to be the best you can be whereas over there it's like completely the opposite you are there purely for enjoyment purely for the enjoyment of others to help with the education of of coaches so that they can understand things and you really feel valued and respected by all of the amazing teachers that are just willing to learn and soak up any knowledge that you have so I think it's like the the kind of that release and relaxation that you need coming from that kind of high pressured environment and that enjoyment is really what should be at the root of any kind of sport shouldn't it when someone gets into it when a kid gets into cricket like a girl a boy anyone it should be about that enjoyment and do you find that you get the same kind of enjoyment and fulfillment from you know performing at that top level as you would doing the charity stuff or is it just it's kind of incomparable because they're quite different great question yeah I think I think it's quite incomparable because it's a very different type I mean my I think they are pretty incomparable because I think my best ever memory of kind of enjoyment is when we're at 2009 we were in Sydney it's the World Cup final and I was lucky enough to well unlucky enough in one way that I was batting because I shouldn't have been batting at all at like number nine or something but managed to hit the winning runs and I think the moment where I had pretty much 15 girls running at me or less Lottie in floods of tears everyone just coming like that moment of seeing the rest of your your teammates come running towards you is something that I will cherish for a long time out of that entire year moment everything else whereas I guess the enjoyment factor is being in a dance mosh pit with tennis balls flying everywhere with kids just having the best time of their lives and you've probably made their year by getting them to throw a ball or hit you know hit a ball and learn how to play cricket I think 
it's two very different feelings but just as amazing and you mentioned 2009 which ended up being a pretty successful year for the England women's team doing the double as well as the ashes what did you feel in that moment when you hit the winning runs in Australia's backyard to take the trophy home well it's a funny thing I think I felt physically sick most of the innings when I was on the side but as soon as I was actually in bat with uh, Nikki Shaw you kind of you're there and you've got a job to do so and you can you can actually control what happens whereas you can't there's nothing you can do on the side but watch and feel horrendously nervous and I just remember being like right this is what we've got to do everything else and I just remember yeah getting in thanks Susie Bates for bowling me a nice leg side um, low full toss for me to whip to the leg side it was quite probably the only shot I've got in the book so yeah there was like this moment of like your relief like oh my god we've actually done it make sure that the ball goes to the boundary you don't get run out or something like all the rest of it but yeah it was it was amazing and I'd spent that whole winter out in Sydney so it kind of become my second home so it it was really nice to do it there uh, and yeah in Australia's backyards always always better isn't it and so talking of backyards the Commonwealth Games is in the backyard for all of us next year. And sadly, not something you would have been able to compete in because this is going to be the first cricket in the Commonwealth Games and the women's cricket is what we're having, which honestly, I just cannot be more excited. When did this become apparent this is going to be a thing and how mega super duper excited were you? So, oh, this all came to a head probably, well, there have been a lot of discussions above my station when I was at ICC kind of in the sort of 2017, 16 years. But the real kind of grunt work came in 2018. And I remember it was November, December. It was the Women's T20 World Cup in the West Indies during that time. And we were basically pulling a bid together to get cricket, women's cricket in the Commonwealth Games. And we were working off the time zones between the West Indies, Dubai and the UK to try and get this bid in on time because we only had a couple of weeks to get it in across multiple time zones so it was um and during an event so it was an interesting time and then we had to on my way back from the West Indies in again I think it was end of November December had to actually go and present the bid to a panel and then there was a series of levels of negotiation and then obviously it got announced that that cricket would be included um, in the sports program which was really very exciting And then this role, I started this role, which is the sport competition manager for cricket in March of this year. So I figured it was the opportunity to start something pretty much completely from scratch, um, something that the organising committee have never really done. There was a men's competition in Kuala Lumpur in 1998, but it was 50 overs. It lasted, it had, I think the first matches started before the opening ceremony and it was a, yeah, a lot different back then. So pretty much starting from scratch and obviously the women are are taking front and centre at this games, which is, which is amazing as well. We've seen the impact visibility and TV rights and all this fun stuff can have on the women's game with the 100 this year what do you think it will mean for the women's game to have women's cricket in the commonwealth i think it's amazing one because there's real good synergy between the commonwealth countries that play cricket 
and just the countries that play cricket. They're pretty much identical. So you're going to have all of the best teams there. So England, Australia, India, Pakistan, South Africa, New Zealand, and then a couple more qualifiers. So it'll be it'll be all the best um, international teams there. I think also the secondly, it's going to be an amazing at an amazing venue at Edgbaston. You know, they they are well versed in in hosting international competitions, World Cups. Obviously, they have T20 Blast Finals Day pretty much every year. They're they're good at creating great atmospheres. And I think lastly, it's around the fact that it's a multi-sport event. So it's going to open up a huge audience to people that have never experienced cricket before and they're going to be seeing the women do it. So I guess I'm thinking of myself as a fan of sport. When the Olympics were on, I was watching the BMX, the Taekwondo, the you know triathlon team event, like something that I would never, ever watch normally. But because it's an Olympics, I would absolutely have it on. So I'm imagining there's going to be a lot of people out there that are either coming as part of the ticket ballot and are like, do you know what? Got to try cricket for the first time or they see it on the TV. And obviously being on BBC as well will be a massive boost. And you, you've seen the kind of impact that the hundreds had being on free to air TV. So it's hugely exciting. Um, it's a jam packed schedule, um, but and with the best teams there. So I'm just looking forward to next year. Are there ever any moments you're like, oh, I wish, you know, I was still in my prime at the moment and I would get the opportunity to play in something like Commonwealth Games on home soil? I mean, I'm not going to lie. The opportunity to add a medal to a collection rather than a trophy or an urn um, would be amazing. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie on that one. Um, But. I think Sophie Eccleston has the left arm spin department very, very much covered. So I probably wouldn't even get in the team. <laughs> she is quite good. We mm. can't really deny that one. No, I can't at all. Yeah. And also, so it's not just teams like England and Australia, the, you know, the big names of the women's game playing. What do you think it means for those smaller nations that don't necessarily get that kind of coverage to get an opportunity to play in something like the Commonwealth Games? Yeah, I think it's great. I think the um, ICC um, decided that the final place would be determined by a qualification event um, in January of next year. So it gives the opportunity of of some of those countries that are really pushing for an opportunity on a global stage. So the likes of Scotland, the likes of PNG, um, the now now I'm reeling off, but um, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh are, are still to qualify. So it'll be a really competitive tournament. I'm looking forward to seeing how that all pans out and if one of one of those um kind of emerging teams gets in the Commonwealth Games I think it'd be brilliant brilliant for them and a brilliant story as well and you mentioned about free to wear with the 100 and then on the back of that we saw a couple of the England games most notably the T20 series on free to air how important is it for young girls and young women who perhaps might not know what cricket is and then they're just flicking through the channels and they can just see cricket there and fall in love with the game. Yeah, it's vital. I think um, there's always that that drop off and challenge when when sport comes or is put behind a paywall. I think giving it that um, 
coverage, um, getting it into every household that's got a TV license um, is is amazing. And not only just in the UK, I think also there'll be rights holders from around the world showing this cricket. So um, it will be great to see young girls seeing some of the best athletes on a world stage and a great event. And I think can't get much better than that. And also it's such a, you know, prolific stadium as Edgbaston, Fortress Edgbaston. It's seen it's seen a lot of it's seen a lot of cricket and a lot of historic moments over the time. So let's hope there's something else to come in there. And obviously your role involves a lot of organization and you know, imagining many spreadsheets and that kind of thing. So you said you were very regimented at school and dedicated, a bit of a geek. Is that something that's helping you now? Yes, um, I would say so. Um that yeah you are correct there's quite a lot of spreadsheets but there's just I think the biggest learning curve I had from here is being in a multi-sports environment like you don't quite understand how big a machine is until you're in it and I think my role here is basically to be the cricket expert and go this is what athletes need for transport this is what they need to eat and this is what the timings are for matches and it actually has a massive impact because take the transport for example it's not just cricket they're dealing with 19 sports three villages it's um it's a big big beast so that's what's been a lot of fun to understand um and be a part of and I think it's great that um cricketers will get to experience what it's like to see other sports to be around other athletes um to to be part of this kind of multi-sports friendly games as we say and obviously you stepped away from England before sort of professional contracts came into place and now with the regional side each team gets five contractors at Western Storm which fund their sixth contract how important for the development of the game do you think that is? I think it's been a really um, brilliant step made by the ECB um, I think it's hard because lots of people say well how can you have five or six domestic professionals when actually you need a, you know a team or squad of 15 um, you can always want more but I think it is really important to have um, that pool of professional players to support the international side. I mean, I'm sure you've spoken about it before, but the likes of Tash Farrant, who may not have even stayed in the game if she hadn't had a, um, a domestic contract offered to her. And I think it's really important to keep your best players um, in a professional setup um, and supporting um, those teams domestically. And I do think that domestic cricket in the UK now that you can even see it on TV um, has improved massively over the last few years and I think um, professionalization of the domestic game can only help that I think you know Australia's le leading the charge they're far quite frankly far ahead of the pack in that respect and I think it shows because the depth of the players every time I see a new Australia player make a debut it doesn't look like a debutante to me they have huge depth in their player pool and um, I think that yeah professionalizing the domestic system is the only way you can do that and with England at the minute with the contracts it's never been wider so to speak to get in the England squad and being a Sussex girl yourself you must feel some pride seeing the likes of Maya Boucher and Charlie Dean enter that England fold 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's great um, to see new faces, new young faces making their debuts and getting a chance. I think the England team, compared to a lot, has been quite formulaic in the fact that the same faces are always selected and there hasn't been as much competition for places as you may see in other teams. And I think it's really good now that new players are coming in, new players are, you know, are stepping up and seeing how they're actually being rewarded for those chances on the stage. I mean, Charlie Dean did a great job when she got her chance. So I think I think it's good. And I think also the domestic competition now in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint, the Charlotte Edwards Trophy, being kind of that high performance, smaller number of teams allows some of those younger players um, to really shine and, and take stage and get noticed. So I think that's working as well. It's all about that see it to be it, you know, and that's what the free to air, the contracts and all of this are doing. And it's a development we've seen really ramp up over the last year, which is amazing. But you must have seen it change quite a lot since you first got involved. That was just me going on about see it to be it has all ramped yeah. massively, like really accelerated in the last year. But have you, you've seen it change a lot since you first got involved, haven't you? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, go back, God, you know, 15, 16 years I was making my international debut and I didn't even know the opposition. So that's like 15 years ago. Then I guess you fast forward to 2016. And I remember being in a meeting with my boss and I was trying to get the women's global qualifier to get live to be live streamed because it was it it wasn't in anyone's budgets and we were trying to fight for it. We managed to get I think it was the games from one venue live streamed plus some digital content clips on that. And off the back of that, we then had a conversation or in the ICC boardrooms, again, above me slightly around, well, we need to televise the Women's World Cup. Like, why is it that only 10 games are going to be televised? And all of a sudden made this decision because there was a tie and that was televised um, in the qualifier between in India and South Africa that got brilliant views to say we need to televise all the women's games at the Women's World Cup in 2017. So honestly, with I think it was the decision was made in April 2017. And obviously the event was in June, July when they were like, we need to televise all the games. And they're like, OK. How are we going to do this? So, you know, trying to get commentators, trying to get all of the camera operators, any sort of additional scaffolding needed, all had to go in at the last minute. And it was one of the best decisions they made because, like you said, you need you need to see the games, you need to create the content, you need to, you know, really bring to life those magic moments. And you can only do that if a camera's watching it. So um, that was a massive shift within the ICC. And obviously it went so well that they've now committed to televising every single uh, Women's World Cup match. So that was quite the turning point, I think. So it's been changed quite a lot. And now obviously there it leaps and bounds and you've got a 84,000 seater stadium filled. So at the T20 World Cup, which was quite a sight to behold. Yeah. And so obviously we won't keep you for too much of the day um, because I imagine there's probably quite a lot going on at your end that you don't want to sit chatting to us in our hoodies all day. But um, so it's what, 290 odd days to the Commonwealth Games starting? Something like that. What is the plan now? You know, what's the next thing on the agenda? Oh, great question. I think the first things first is I'm lucky is that I have a venue that is well versed in hosting international cricket. So I'm not working with a complete either a building site or, or a completely greenfield site from scratch. So that's great. I think the thing is, is around um, firstly, once we know all the teams 
uh, getting them in, sorting out their village and just to engage with the ECB and obviously Warwickshire and counties within the West Midlands. Going to get this again with a home multi-sports games in the UK and trying to build on the momentum that um, they've seen from the 100 last year hopefully with a good performance in the the world cup or there will be a world cup winning side um anyway at the games so it'll we will see um but yeah those those kind of the key things around building relationship building momentum and making sure it's the best show possible uh, and entertaining for fans and in that you know all that time off you have do you do you still turn your arm over ever so the last ball I bowled and I don't know if this counts was for David Richardson's leaving do in 2019 and it was with a tennis ball in an indoor school off about 10 yards but an actual full 22 yard ball like bolt like bold probably was my last game for Sussex in 2015 September 2015 was the last time I ever bowled but no I play I basically try and play every other sport at the moment. So playing hockey currently in Birmingham, did a bit of touch rugby when I was in Dubai, also played for the ICC football team when I was there, but haven't, unfortunately the football night and the hockey night clashes here. So can't do that. Bit of golf, obviously most retired cricketers play golf. So yeah, and I'm into CrossFit, which I can't believe I've said that out loud, but yes, I'm, I'm one of those as well. So lots of other things keeping me busy. Yeah. And so just... On the link between your work with the Commonwealth and charity stuff, you're still doing your stuff um, with Cricket Without Boundaries alongside. And do you find that the two somehow help each other out? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, at the moment, we're doing a massive volunteer um, recruitment drive well I say recruitment drive but we're currently going through the process of the recruitment of volunteers um so uh, interviews and everything for lots of different roles across the games and I'll have a pool, pool of cricket specific volunteers so kind of my experience and knowledge from helping out with volunteer recruitment the cricket without boundaries is is helping somewhat there is uh, a legacy kind of project and team within Birmingham 22 Commonwealth Games but that's mainly based for activities within the West Midlands and regenerating the area and the young population here so I wish there was more that could be done between the two but unfortunately for my Cricket Without Boundaries trustee hat um, there's not there's not more that could be done really. Honestly what you're doing is so fab and it's been great to see you play and develop from when you're just bowling in the nets to look at you now and we are so excited by having women's cricket. Now, as you can probably tell, this was recorded a while ago. I believe we recorded this back in October. So, obviously, a lot of things have changed. But have no fear, because would we ever leave you guys in the dark? Georgie sat down recently to catch up with Holly Colvin to get the latest goss on the Commonwealths. So, welcome to part two of Holly Colvin, cricket extraordinaire, cricket organiser extraordinaire, as we... We get to the business end, you know, it's very, very close to the Commonwealth Games now. Holly, how are you feeling? I'm excited is probably the short word. I just cannot wait for a ball to actually finally be bowled at Edgebaston on the 29th of July. Um, It can't come soon enough. At the same time, obviously, there's still a few bits and bobs to to get finalised before everyone arrives in town. But yeah, just ready and raring to go now. And what are things looking like around Birmingham? Is it all Commonwealth Games now? Is, does Edgbaston look amazing? 
Yeah, so Birmingham, you, you'll see it around the city. There's all the sort of city dressing up. You should know that the Commonwealth Games is in town. Literally, as you walk out of New Street Station, all you can see is the branding. The mega store, um, so the, the big um, merchandise store, the main one in Victoria Square, has opened. Now there was official opening earlier this week. And Edgbaston is currently quite busy at the moment with the England-India uh, men's test match and the there's a few more fixtures there to go. So that will start to transform as of, sort of the 23rd of July and the build up to, to, to the games. So plenty still happening around the city. And so since we last spoke, which would have been what, October time, I guess, what have you been up to? Because it obviously it must have been a manic few months. It has. It certainly has. It's so now we've very much stopped the sort of planning phase and it's now sort of their course sort of readiness is probably the, the technical term. Um, but it's now basically ensuring that what we've put in place and all the plans we have actually works. So testing things out, doing some simulations, working very, very closely with the venue, understanding kind of because obviously their venue has continuously been changing over this season as well. So making sure that everything that we have planned, there's no gaps and um, we can be agile on the ground to, to deal with things. So lots of different things going on and obviously been busy watching everything unfold in the city like I said with all the city dressing going up so that's exciting. And since we spoke we've had the qualifications come in so and we've also got the schedule what excites you most about seeing maybe some teams you wouldn't necessarily see so much of? Yeah, so I think I think it's got a fantastic mix of those that, you know, the best teams in the world that you'd see on a global stage, um, plus obviously Barbados representing the West Indies. So it'll be the first time that they've played an official sort of T20 international against the, the full member nations as such. Um, so that will be great. And I think also it'll just be really competitive because even though Barbados are uh, representing themselves as a, as a nation, they've still got world-class players. So you'll still see the likes of Hayley Matthews leading the side, Gianna Dottin, sort of the Knight Twins in there. So they've got a lot of experience who've played international cricket as well. And then obviously the, you know, the usual suspects in India, Australia, England, Pakistan, New Zealand, Sri Lanka. Um, so that there's, there'll be a great mix. And I, I can't wait for the competition to unfold really. And what have ticket sales and everything looked like? Because I know there's a lot of young girls out there who are going to be so excited to see women's cricket as the only cricket in this tournament. So ticket sales are going well in terms of we have a lot of tickets to sell. So we're obviously ticketing not just one match day, we're ticketing ticketing each match individually. So we've got 16 matches to sell. Um, there are still tickets available for all matches, including actually the medal matches as well, but they're obviously going thick and fast. So absolutely, people can still go onto, our, onto the Birmingham 22 website and grab tickets and, and see kind of the world-class game in action. And what does it mean for the women's game and the game as a whole to have this in the tournament and to you as having it holding it for the first time? Yeah, it's it's a huge moment, I think. I think for, for a manner of reasons. One is kind of getting new people through the door and actually experiencing cricket for the first time. And it might be their experience of cricket for the first time is women's cricket. So making that great first impression, I think, um, and bringing people together within the city of Birmingham, within the West Midlands as well, to get them enthused. And I think the other quite simple thing, particularly for the for cricket in the UK, is it's being slap bang in the centre of free-to-air TV, right on BBC, 
all the England games will be on BBC One and the, re- the rest of the games, I know, I don't know the exact details, but will definitely be available across sort of their digital channels and on the red button. So I think that getting visibility across, you know, in homes across the UK is massive. And obviously having partners with some of the other nations that are participating uh, in the games as well. So to see it on their free-to-air channels is is huge. So I think it's just that opportunity for cricket for the first time really to be part of something bigger, to be part of that multi-sports games kind of machine um, and, and get more people that are just general sports fans actually becoming fans of cricket. And would you have wanted to play in this? No, it's quite a straightforward answer, no. I... I get so lots of people have said this every time I've been to sort of World Cup events, like, don't you wish you're out there? My simple answer is no. I get far more pleasure in putting it on and watching people perform and um, knowing that it's something that I've been able to, you know, enabled players to play in world class stadiums. I get find other joys now in other ways, but I, I absolutely love what I do. And I think. One of the main reasons I took this job with the Birmingham 22 Games is because it's a first and we can build a blueprint for cricket and multi-sports games in the future. And actually it's quite an important part of, of legacy of the game as well. So that's what drew me to it. And that's why I love what I do. And that takes us nicely to my next question about cricket in a multi-sport event. Talk to me about the Olympics. Are we aiming for that one? And what would your hope be on that to be some part of it? Yeah, I think definitely it can only be good for the sport to be part of the Olympics. That Olympic movement just opens up so many more avenues to play cricket across the world and actually diversify where cricket is strong around the world and increase enhance funding opportunities for teams, both men's and women's teams, is part of an Olympic movement. So absolutely would love to see cricket in the Games. Um, Obviously, this is the first time really, um, obviously it's been in the Asian Games, but in in a Commonwealth Games to to have cricket part of that it's certainly going to be kind of a showcase for how it how it finds its place within within a multi-sports games and I'm sure the Olympics will be looking on to see how how well it goes what whether cricket's in the Olympics in the future that's obviously probably out of my hands but I'm going to do the best I can to, to show why it should be but yeah hopefully that's something that's in cricket's future and obviously multi-sport event so many different sports going on you say you don't want to play cricket you wouldn't want to be part of this. If there were a sport in the Commonwealth Games that you could be part of, what would you pick? Oh, it's a great, great question. I mean, I would love to be able to like do gymnastics, but I know how much hard work and dedication that takes, which I'm not sure I'd really. And also my flexibility is so bad that it would be the worst, worst discipline I could pick. But I'd love to be able to do it. I just, I couldn't rock a sparkly leotard either, I don't think. No, that's also true. But yeah, so that's probably something. I mean, I do you know what? Probably now, it's a, I would probably go for lawn bowls. Like, I think it'd be very therapeutic, very social sport. I imagine it's played in some fair weather countries. Yeah, a lot of skill involved. And actually, you know, be quite a, quite a good community sport as well. There's quite a lot of sports clubs around, especially in this UK, that also have some lawn bowls. So maybe that. Yeah, and... um. So we're only a few weeks away now from it all kicking off. What happens between now and then? Oh, great question. I mean, 
uh, for me, it's kind of making sure I'm having conversations with all of the, the participating countries so that they're aware of all the things that they should expect when they arrive and also the things that they need to do as well to, that we need to organise. So there's obviously a lot of things pre-competition that need to go on in terms of meetings and media and all the rest of it that we need to make sure is all in place. We're obviously finalising everything into terms of like all the arrivals. So um, the arrivals and departures uh, team, which obviously finding out when the teams are going to get in. And then I think the, the key thing is also the squad selections. So 11th of July is the deadline for teams actually to submit their final squads of 15. So once we know all of that, then we can start again, finalise all of our plans and everything in terms of the players themselves and also their support staff. So plenty of stuff to be going on between now and then. And then obviously hit the ground running 22nd of July is when the first sort of teams arrive. And I guess for cricket teams, it is quite a strange thing because they're not used to being part of someone like the England team aren't going to be used to being part of such a massive team England as a whole. So I guess that's exciting for them, but also brings that factor that it's quite difficult. It's something completely new. They're not used to it. It's going to be very different for them. And then there's lots of public transport going on, isn't there as well? So not getting their private buses, someone carrying all their stuff for them. So it's going to be very different for a lot of these teams, isn't it? Yeah, so it's it's called the friendly games for a reason, and I keep hammering that home. So there will be some slight nuances that they that they're not used to being part of, I guess, a big machine. You know, buses are not dedicated to them; they're running on schedules, so they'll have to kind of fall in line with, I guess, some of the organisational planning and and have less of a say, I guess, on determining some of their own schedules. So we obviously have to work with each other to find a middle ground around what works for everyone and what works for us, which is part of my role. But I think actually everyone's been brilliant. Like everyone I've spoken to, all the cricket teams I've spoken to understand that. They get it. They know it's not a cricket, you know, cricket only competition. They realise it's part of multi-sport. So I think there will be very sort of different experiences and some will be, be to their benefit and be fantastic. And some might be just a bit different that they'll have to adapt some of their planning to. So I think... Yeah, there's a lot of we're a multi, we're a multi sport. We're a public transport games. Um, so again, a lot of fans getting to and from venues. Uh, we are promoting public transport. We're trying to be as sustainable as possible. And there's some great kind of networks and connections in within the West Midlands that you can use for free to get to all of the matches. And what's been the hardest thing leading up to the games to sort out? What's been the hardest thing? The weather. <laughs> That would be probably, that's the one thing. I know that's not, it's a bit of a cop-out answer, but there's generally the one thing that is keeping me up at night is this, is I cannot control the weather. And you can obviously, it's a very condensed schedule. And so, I mean, the last couple of days here, we've had, has just proven how different the weather can be in, in a matter of 24 hours, just with the India Test match at Edgbaston at the moment. So it's nothing I control. Control. We've obviously got all the regulations in place um, in order to deal with weather. It's just trying to make the most of, of the competition that we have. So um, that, I'd say, is the one thing that I'm worried about. And you never know, we might get a heat wave. Yes, I'm, I would be all up for a heat wave. I would be up for people. If people are moaning how hot it is, it would be a joy. Yeah, wouldn't it just get your legs out, get a tan on? That's what I'm aiming for at the Commonwealth Games. So, yeah, we're very nearly there. You say that first ball is when you're going to feel the relief. When are you going to feel the excitement? What's the thing that you're most excited about? And will it be a glass of champagne when it's all over? (laughs) What am I? I actually, do you know what I'm really excited about? Is actually witnessing a medal ceremony. Because obviously I've come from a sport where you just see a trophy lift. And obviously some sparklers and stuff, but actually having that moment of the three teams on a podium in Edgbaston, seeing all the branding up and seeing 
teams being awarded their medals and hearing the national anthem of whichever team it is. I think that's the moment I'm really excited for to see and also see what it means to the teams as well, because it'll be the first time that they get awarded medals. So, yeah, I'd say that is probably the moment that that I'm looking forward to. I'm sure that'll be a different answer if it's the Australian national anthem that we hear. It's actually our least favourite part and we're going to forget all about it, basically. (laughs) Um, Well, I think that's all of our catching up we had to do from last time we spoke, because obviously we talked a lot about you and getting into your role with Commonwealth Games. But um, hopefully we'll be able to get a catch up in maybe while we're there. I'll try and see you while we're at the Games. I'm sure both of us are going to be running around like headless chickens, get a good pair of trainers in, I've been told. And then maybe we'll have to have a debrief afterwards, potentially with a glass of wine or a bottle each. <laughs> yeah, my round. <laughs> yeah, you buy the first one, I get the second and we'll just carry on. Yeah. yeah okay, um, great. Thank you so much for taking time out on your one of your last your last Sundays of rest before it all kicks off. And um, yeah, I'm quite excited. So I will see you in a few weeks, hopefully. All right. Thanks, Georgie. Cheers. Thanks so much. Have a nice evening. Massive thank you to Holly for coming on and being a guest and for also giving us an update on what's going on with the Commonwealth. Really interesting stories to hear and really interesting to hear her perspective on being so young, making her debut for England, as well as winning the World Cup twice in one year. Of course, they were different formats, but still unprecedented times and I don't think we'll ever see anything like that again and to all our listeners if you want to keep up to date with everything that we're doing you can follow us on twitter at wcricketchat on instagram at women's cricket chat and if you want to give us a like on facebook we are women's cricket chat if you'd like to give our personal twitters a follow then it's at hannity1194 at georgia heath 27 at cassie coombs 98 at mihika barshney and i'm at alex jane this has been women's cricket chat tune in next time